0: You are listening to From So Brighty to Recovery with Jesse Mogul, episode 188. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to From So Brighty to Recovery. I am your host, Jesse Mogul. I am in addiction recovery, and I am through the moon excited about today's episode. And I know, I know, everybody, I say that all the time, but today's guest is literally someone, the moment I met her, I was absolutely taken aback by her knowledge of the science of addiction. And we've talked about that a lot on here. I have referenced amygdala, midbrain, prefrontal cortex, at least every other show. I have brought you some knowledge about that, but my knowledge is Limited to what I find interesting and what I've gone off and studied, and even then, I have said multiple times, I am not Bill Nye the Science Guy. I'm simply Jesse Mogul, someone who's fascinated by this material, and I am a leading voice and an expert in what I'm a leading voice and an expert in. I thought today was the day to finally bring in a leading voice and an expert in the field of the neurobiology of addiction. So today, without, we're going This is gonna be an amazing conversation. So we're just gonna get straight into her bio because I've got to get her on the microphone. Today, I'm going to introduce you to Dr. Trisha Witte. She earned a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Arkansas, completed her pre-doctoral internship on the trauma track at the Medical University of South Carolina, uh, funded by the NIH training grant, and she's now a licensed psychologist in the state of Alabama, which is how I met her through the addiction recovery courses I'm taking at the University of Alabama. She is currently an associate professor of human development and family studies at the University of Alabama. So if you've ever heard of Roll Tide, that's the school she works at. Um, Dr. Whitty's areas of ab- academic research and clinical interests include trauma, dating violence, sexual assault, substance use, and addiction. She runs the prevention of violence and substance use research labs. Um, she's a faculty affiliate of the Center for Substance Use Research and Related Conditions. I mean, come on, is this woman not just perfect for talking about the science of addiction? All right, As the coordinator for the Addiction and Recovery Studies Program, which is an undergraduate degree program that she developed, this is how I met her. I am not in that program completely, but man, does she make me want to get into that program? Without any further ado, I am so excited to introduce you to Dr. Professor, all of the cool titles, Trisha Whitty. Welcome to my show. It's so great to have you here.
1: Thank you, Jesse. I'm so excited to be here, too.
0: You are one of the very few people who have been asked to come on the show who've never even heard of the show, um, have not listened to any of the episodes. You are probably already thinking this dude's got a ton of energy, (laughs) like (laughs) he is super excited about what he does. Um I am I there is a fascination that I have since the moment um I, as soon as I got sober one of my main questions I started asking myself was why did I continue down this path for so many years knowing that it was killing me seeing my body deteriorate watching my mind start to lapse um all of these negative con- all these negative things were happening and yet finding the bottle finding the straw finding the pipe everything mattered more Than not doing it, right? As long as I kept my job, as long as I had my car, as long as I had my freedom, I was good to go. Let's get messed up. You help people understand that there's actually something scientific going on in here. And when people have that question, is addiction a disease? I tried to explain this the other day. I've been trying to explain it on TikTok and Instagram reels for the longest time. I think you know how to talk about this way, way more informed than I. Is addiction a disease?
1: That's such a great question and I want to to point out that in the past the community everyone the public always thought this was some sort of sinful behavior a willpower issue a moral issue and that results in all sorts of stigma and punishment instead of treatment and so this has been a long standing history of the way that people view this particular illness. And now that we have neuroscience, we can say, yes, it's a disease and here it is in the brain. (laughs) And so this, I hope, will be a relief for a lot of people who are struggling themselves in recovery or currently using. Um, It can also be really eye-opening for people in the public, family members, friends, um, to try to figure out why is this behavior happening, right? And and now we know with neuroscience, we know exactly why it's happening. Um, So I'd love to, to talk more about that.
0: Oh, and we are. And so, you know, it's okay. This is gonna be a great segue question because when I've brought this up with other people, they're like, well, I didn't ask for cancer. My mom certainly did not ask for Crohn's disease, nor did she want to suffer with that for 29 years before the alcohol that she added to help her with the suffering uh, to, you know, that Crohn's and alcohol, they worked really well in tandem to take her away from me way too soon. So I get it, right? Nobody asked for cancer. Nobody asked for Crohn's. People think you asked for addiction. Like well you kept drinking and so um i mean i'm rambling now i just want you to explain to the listenership and really help me further d- dive into why I, I believe that it is a disease now it took some videos it took a lot of study and, and i do believe for those who are still on the fence about that walk them through what this sounds like to see addiction as a disease
1: yeah that's a great question so uh, everyone still asks or still says that right it's a choice it's a choice this is your behavior and and all of that nonsense and there are some people who are much more vulnerable to develop an addiction even with just casual use of things like alcohol and so there are a lot of people out there that are thinking well i drink alcohol too and i'm not an alcoholic so why can't that other person drink moderately like i am um so there's a lot of genetic research that we actually won't have a ton of time to get into with the genetics cuz we're going to go into some other stuff but Just to know that alcohol can hijack your brain, particularly if you're vulnerable to that getting hijacked. And then once you're hijacked, you don't you can't choose to have this disease or not. It's there. It's with you. And the disease we like to call is a disease of choice. And what that means is that the disease is of the choice and the decision-making center of your brain. And so you're now kind of on autopilot being driven by this hijacked plane, basically our hijacked brain. Um, which I was going to say is like a hijacked plane. Right. And so you're being driven by this. Um, And so, yeah, so we kind of go back and forth as a community. Right. It it, particularly if we don't know anything about the science and really try to blame people um, for what they're doing and um, for what they're continuing to do. But the fact that they got it in the first place probably wasn't their choice, and the fact that they're doing things to make it last long, um, we know is now definitely not their choice because they're driven by this hijacked part of their brain.
0: So what I think I'm hearing, and for the listeners, I think they uh, let me make sure I draw this connection for them. It's like if you're predisposed to have breast cancer or predisposed to have lung cancer, and then you smoke cigarettes or you get in a tanning bed and you do it naked and you don't put suntan lotion on, like. No, you didn't ask for breast cancer or lung cancer or testicular cancer, but you were predisposed to it. And then your actions started to sort of just nudge that predisposition to to say, okie dokie, it's only a matter of time before I can flip the switch and give you this cancer that you're already predisposed for. That's right. a lot like what we're talking about with addiction. I'm predisposed to it. I know it was in my family for years. My brother, yeah. it skipped my brother, but it got me. Yeah. Um, so what? How how is that supposed to comfort anyone to know, oh, great, I was predisposed to this. Is this supposed to comfort them or is it just supposed to clearly give them a a way of saying, so I don't want them to think that they get permission to have been an addict all these years, but I don't want them to continuously beating themselves up over it either. Like it happened. Now let's move through it.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's what it does. It, it, it tells you you're, you're not some inherently bad seed, right? you're, Somebody who had a genetic predisposition, and now you have it. So now you move on. And even if you knew it was running in your family, I mean, things run in families all the time, and we don't think that we're susceptible to that too. And that that's not a problem. That's that's the way everyone is. Um, But yes, you were vulnerable. Little do you know, um, and now you have it. And so you definitely have to deal with it at this point, right? Um, But we shouldn't blame ourselves completely for um, ending up where we ended up, basically.
0: So let's say that somebody listened to like, okay, you know, great. And go, I'm going to go have my mom or my dad listen to this and have them understand that this is a disease. I was predisposed to it. When we start to try to talk about how things are a disease. And then we start getting Bill Nye, the science guy, who did help make it more layman. Um, and I certainly, I want people to understand, like if, if they had to try to explain how addiction is a disease to somebody in 60 seconds, right? So they didn't get them lost in too many details. Well, how would you word that? What would that sound like coming out of your mouth?
1: Oh, that's a tough question right there.
0: <laughs> do you need 120 seconds? To I do don't really. My- um, <laughs> this is why I can't do it in Instagram Reel.
1: <laughs> right, right, I agree. Um, Gosh, I would say, uh, you know, I would use the hijack brain analogy is that um, is that some people are more susceptible to have their brain hijacked. And once it's hijacked, they don't have the same cognitive control as other people do. um, And they're now driven by drug-seeking behavior because of the hijacked brain um, and you don't choose to be hijacked right there are people who can actually try this try that and it just doesn't even hijack the brain and there are other people who can try it once and, and they're done and it, it the hijack has taken place um, and so the vulnerability is there it happened um, and now we need to kind of see it and for some family members who feel like they've really lost their loved one. Cause they're still in active addiction. The, the, you know, the family member is still active addiction. The mom, dad, sometimes I say, imagine your child has been like bit by a zombie, right? And, like they're literally in the body that you know of, but they're just acting very, very differently. And you need to figure out how to bring them back and bring that brain back Um, And it takes a lot of time, but you'll kind of, you'll know it when you see it, but it will still linger a little bit, which we'll talk about um, in a minute, but you can bring that brain back and really kind of connect again. But at the point where they're bit by a zombie, it's really, really hard to, to, to figure out how to reel that person in.
0: Yeah. Cause it's like, you know, and you don't know if you're predisposed and you're okay. right. I mean, I look back at my college times and I was the party animal. If you wanted to be in my inner circle, you were going to party. And I remember there is mostly females who could float in and out. Yeah. They could show up. We could do a bunch of hallucinetics. We could do some, you know, we could do some, whatever. I don't need to get into the details, but we could do all the fun things. And then they'd be good. And they'd be like, yeah, you yeah. know, I wouldn't come back around for two, three months. And then they come back And other people. It's like first time. Yeah. And they were, they were blowing my phone up the next day. And so, um, So you don't know when that switch is going to be flipped. You don't even know you have the switch to flip.
1: Correct. Absolutely. Yep. 100%.
0: So- what I mean, if if somebody's trying to do that 60 second thing, it's like, look, it's a disease in as much as that there is this invisible switch inside of our heads. And if the right thing, it could be sugar, it could be cocaine, yeah. it could be social media certainly has shown a lot of addictive qualities and yep. there's science was done to make it so. But uh, it's like once that switch gets flipped, now we start talking about, you know, the basal ganglia, the prefrontal yes. cortex, the amygdala. We talk about serotonin and dopamine. And this was the part that fascinated me when I first saw you in class the other yes. day. Was like the way that you just so seamlessly explained this, so that it was like, okay, this is like a four-year-old could understand it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I think is really awesome. I don't know if I do it as well as you do, and I'm trying.
1: <laughs> well, I'll try again. But do you want me to talk a little bit about that kind of uh, initial stage of addiction, where where you can? Yes. Get that? <laughs>
0: Yeah. You know, I think it's important that people understand this because it's like, okay, so we've got the switch. Yep. The switch has been flipped. What does it mean? Right. We turned on a machine. We walked, it was something yeah. hit in our brain. It flipped a switch. So when a switch gets flipped, how can people see what that switch being flipped is doing to the brain? And I think this is where you can walk us through this and really discuss this so
1: well. Yeah, absolutely. So at the beginning stages of addiction, you are really, really drawn to that rewarding experience that you're having with alcohol, drugs, whatever you're using. And so we all have this kind of section of the brain, which you've probably gone over before, um, where we can kind of register these rewards and remind us to kind of do those things again. And the reason why we have this part of our brain is kind of it's evolutionarily adaptive. So we share this part of the brain with other species, not just other mammals, but reptiles, right? We see this in in almost all brains, um, that it's adaptive, that if you do something that is rewarding, that you're going to do it again. And because, because typically you're doing things like eating food or drinking, um, or having sex, or something that is like literally promoting yourself and promoting your species. So that's why we have the reward center in the brain. But the, the problem is when we do something like drink a glass of wine or do some shots or whatever, um, that same reward center is registering this experience as incredibly rewarding. And so we're going to have the same exact response, which is we need to do this again. But in this case, it's not something that's promoting our survival. It's actually something that is about to cause us quite a bit of harm in the future. And so we have this reward center and I will break down the different parts of the reward center. The beginning part of the reward center where it all starts is deep in the midbrain, which is a really kind of primitive part of the brain. The hindbrain is the most primitive part, but the midbrain is pretty darn primitive. And what I mean by primitive is it houses a lot of structures that help us survive, right? So the farther back toward the brainstem, the more primitive the structure, it, it helps us breathe and you know, sleep and wake up and things like that. Um, so anyway, so yeah, I
0: hate to interrupt, but for some reference, for those of y'all who've been listening to the show for a while, we talk about the triune brain and that back area that, that, uh, doctor, I doctor, professor Tricia is discussing right now is the reptilian area of the brain. And she's probably going to move into the mammalian soon. And then we move into the more rational, logical side. So just to give you guys some perspective, you have heard some of this before. And what she's talking about right now is the reptilian side of the brain.
1: Excellent. Yes. So we have the ventral tegmental area, which is a mouthful, but the VTA, and this part of the brain can communicate with another part of the brain um, through dopamine. Okay. So the VTA will send a message forward through the help of dopamine to make its way up to another part of the brain, which is in the basal ganglia, or also known as the limbic system, which is the ventral striatum and I'm going to give you so many terms, you're going to hate this. The ventral striatum also is where the nucleus accumbens is. The nucleus accumbens is probably the term you want to hear the most, or you want to stamp in your memory. So the VTA is sending a message to the nucleus accumbens, right? Which is now in the basal ganglia, in the limbic system, et cetera. And what that's doing is it's saying, hey, we just did something rewarding. Um, You need to pay attention. It's really like an attention grabber. Um, Because if you think about like a rat, you know, stumbling across a, you know, trash can outside of a restaurant, it can't just pass by. It has to be like, whoa, we just hit jackpot here. Like pay attention, stop going where you were going and turn around and do this, right? And so it really is kind of that attention grabbing moment when we're getting this kind of message but it's also a motivating moment right it it has something to do with our momentum toward and our motivation to actually do this again so it's not just reward that was interesting move on it's reward that was interesting let's do it again okay so there's kind of the start of the message the vta to the nucleus accumbens. And then it projects upward, lastly, to the prefrontal cortex. It helps us kind of figure out how to do it again and how can we come back to the same location or how can we discover this you know, again? Or how do we stamp it in our memory? Memory is a big part of this too, right? And so it starts from the primitive part of the, our brain and moves finally up to that um, more sophisticated part of the brain, which is the prefrontal cortex. Now, this will happen, like I said, it, it, anything, like if you eat a really good hamburger or whatever, if you have a, you know, a, a big gulp, we used to have big gulps all the time from <laughs> 7-Eleven. But anyway, if you have some, you know, some really, something really tasty, right, you're going to have this reaction. It also happens when you hit an unexpected reward. So for example, the classic example, which you may have heard of before, if you, you go to a vending machine and you type in the numbers to get out your M&Ms, and for some reason, two bags of M&Ms come out instead of one, your VTA to nucleus accumbens to prefrontal cortex will light up more than if simply one bag of M&Ms came out, right? One bag is enough for you to be like, yay, I got my M&Ms. But when this unexpected reward happens, it lights up even more. And then that vending machine is now stamped in your brain as a place to come back to. And I guarantee you'll, you'll try it at least one more time, right? Mm-hmm. Try to figure out if it's going to do it again. And so you are now driven and fixated on this particular vending machine because that's where that reward rush took place.
0: This is so fascinating. If that doesn't come on guys, if that doesn't if that's not enough science to prove <laughs> to whoever needs to listen to that that there is a science of addiction, I I mean that's it. I I don't know how we could possibly have put it together any better than that. I wrote down over here the science of blackout and I, I want to get to that because there's a part of me that's fascinated by that part of the brain that can operate when somebody is blacked out and relatively get them home soon. But before we get too far away from what you've just discussed, one of the slides you showed in class talks about how the basal ganglia, um, it's the the addiction neurobiology the basal ganglia and you would put around this binge intoxication uh-huh. the extended amygdala is more about the withdrawal the yes. negative effect and the prefrontal cortex is about the preoccupation yes. and the anticipation walk us through cuz people understand those aspects right it's like they're stressed out at work they get preoccupied with getting drunk once they decide they're going to go to the bar after work it's almost like they calm down in that moment because the anticipation is already been solidified we are going to the bar yeah. afterwards and we're going to get binge drank and intoxicated. And now I don't have to suffer from my withdrawals anymore. So what is the what's going on in the brain with the basal ganglia, extended amygdala and prefrontal cortex in this scenario?
1: Sure. Great. Okay. So yeah, so this, I was talking about this is called the reward pathway. That's the VTA to the nucleus accumbens to prefrontal cortex, very active in this binge intoxication moment. Um, but then as you start to really kind of binge and binge and binge and this is developing into kind of a habit and and you're starting to see that you this is kind of the a priority of yours um, you start to hit kind of a different stage of addiction where you start to realize a little bit of tolerance has kicked in a little bit of withdrawal is going on um, even if by withdrawal I just mean when you can't have it you're grumpy right I don't necessarily mean you're um going through you know um like withdrawal symptoms of like shakes
0: and tremors yeah, we're not talking yeah, that, you know it doesn't have to be that extreme it doesn't
1: have to be that extreme right that's acute withdrawal but we also have other forms of withdrawal that just are kind of like you're just crummy like you're just in a bad mood when you can't get access to to what you need right and so this is kind of that second stage if you will and and different um brain parts are active, right? So the withdrawal or the negative feeling state that we have, um, and that's the amygdala. My goodness, this amygdala is active and it is, um, we know a player in negative emotions. So anytime we're like irritable or fearful or, or any type of negative emotions, that's when the amygdala is active and it is definitely active in this particular withdrawal stage. But not only is the amygdala, it's not the only player that's going on right here. There's also your body's stress response. So we have a natural stress response that's, again, really adaptive if it's only turned on for short periods of time. But during this withdrawal state, it's just like chronically on. And so we have a lot of, um, you know, cortisol and other sorts of stress hormones, and you can just kind of measure this elevated stress reaction in our body so we're under this constant state of stress and our amygdala is telling us that we do not feel good coupled with this though is something really fascinating so your decision in this stage is likely i need to use again right because i need to feel you know better um, of course so you do you try and and you do, you, you feel a little bit better, but you're not getting the the major euphoria that you may have been getting in the earlier stages of addiction. And one thing that's going on is that with that dopamine rush that I explained earlier with the VTA going to the nucleus accumbens and then back up to the prefrontal cortex, the dopamine rush is so heavy that your nucleus accumbens, that middle kind of um, mediator in this process, is receiving too much of it. And our bodies don't like being off balance. It's homeostasis, right? We hate being off balance. We want to be on balance all times. So if you're receiving too much dopamine, your body has to Compensate for that and figure out a way to shut off the dopamine. And the way it does it is it doesn't actually shut the dopamine off, it shuts the landing pads for the dopamine. They're called receptors. They're basically where dopamine lands. And in the nucleus accumbens, what you'll see is those receptors will literally start to disappear. They'll blend in with the rest of the cell membrane instead of stand there waiting for a dopamine molecule to land on it. So you're sitting here in this gross withdrawal kind of blah, negative affect state. And you're trying to like do things to make yourself feel better, including using drugs, but maybe also like, I don't know, trying to see an old friend or like trying to go to a movie, trying to shake this out of you. And you don't have enough landing pads for any dopamine to fall on. So nothing is rewarding anymore seeing an old friend, going to a movie, trying to use you know some of the drugs that you used to use, it's not doing it for you anymore. And so we lose kind of interest, anhedonia is called, lack of interest, lack of pleasure. We lose interest and pleasure in lots of things in life. And now at this point, we're so driven to try to find our drug or alcohol, whatever it was, to lift us up because nothing else is able to do it at that point, we've burned out our receptors. Now, don't fear; they will come back. Right in in recovery, they can they will come back. But at this point, you're just kind of stuck in a funk, and you're looking for something to pull you out of it.
0: And this is where I think you know this is uh, when one time addiction gets to this point. I think we start to really. We talked about the five stages of change, pre-contemplation, you think nothing's wrong, right? Contemplation is probably about the time you start to notice. You're like, wow, I used to enjoy going to amusement parks, and now I don't, right? And I used to love going to aquariums, and now they kind of suck. And I used to enjoy laughing with my friends to Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore, and now those movies suck. And it's not that anything about those things changed. It's your internal mechanism to gauge what's actually interesting and fun for you has been completely shifted.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if you remember the numbers that I threw at you um a while ago, but let me let me tell you these numbers again. When you eat something yummy, you have a 50% increase of dopamine.
0: Oh my god, I love this. Guys, in- listen up. This is some super cool stuff. <laughs> I actually I actually took all this stuff down in my notes. This is going to blow your mind. While she is getting ready to say, I apologize for interrupting you, Trisha, <laughs> but I really need everyone's awareness to start heighten up right now. Whatever you're doing, just listen up. Start back over at the 50% I will. This is going to floor people.
1: This is this is yeah, this is pretty big. So, when you eat something, your reward pathway, right, VTA, nucleus accumbens, prefrontal cortex, will experience an increase in dopamine by 50%, which is pretty large, right? That's enough to tell you, this was really good. I might want to try this hamburger again, right? 50% increase after you eat something. After having sex or during sex, you have a 100% increase of dopamine in your reward pathway. It's the largest. Increase of dopamine that we can experience without any outside chemicals. Okay. So it doubles basically. When you use cocaine, it's a 300% increase. And you think that's big, which it is. It's larger than anything we've ever experienced in our lives or will ever experience. You think that's big. Crystal methamphetamine is a 1200% increase in dopamine. So you think about hijack, right? Your brain is used to 50% increases or maybe 100% increases, and that is it. And that is enough to keep our species alive. We eat, drink, and have sex as a species, partly because of that dopamine rush because it tells us to do it again. Now you're saying cocaine is 300 and crystal methamphetamine is 1200. Your brain cannot come back from that Uh -uh. hamburger or crystal meth, right? (laughs) Right. How are you supposed to pick the hamburger now? It does nothing for you. Right. And then, like I said, over time, your receptors, your dopamine landing pads will start to disappear. So a 50% increase won't even register anymore. Mm -hmm. You have to have 1,200% increases to even register on the small number of landing pads that you have left in your reward pathway.
0: You know, I remember when you first said all those things. I have a very distinct memory of University of Florida, 25 through 30 is when I was there, third university. It was finally the one I graduated from. And I remember like how... Boring food got how many times I would turn down sex for cocaine or LSD or ecstasy. And then the girls I would date, I would eventually get them into it too. And then I'd be amazed how much they shifted from wanting to be intimate or wanting to enjoy their friends. I w- it was just I remember sitting back and just being like, wow, they used to really be into you know laughing with their friends and 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 being intimate in the bedroom. And now all of a sudden, like three months into it, like they are just like, Hey, are we gonna go get some blow tonight? Like, are we gonna go to the club and not understanding, like, regardless of my responsibility for introducing them to cocaine, how much it was shifting their brain, like how much that actually I was witnessing this change you're talking about. It was phenomenal to me because I noticed it as a habit with each woman that I would date. If they stuck around and did these things with me, they would change in a way that happened so fast. I could not understand why it was happening.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But if you think about it, remember what the reward pathway is there for. It's for the rat who may miss out on that trash can outside of the restaurant. And you would never want the rat to miss out on that. And you would want the rat to stay there. Well, not as the restaurant owner, (laughs) but, but as the rat, you would want to stay there because that's gonna help you survive. You're gonna have a one track mind and it's this dumpster, right? But in humans with, Drugs that take us into a, a, a arena that we've never been into, we've never experienced such a reward as this. We now have a one-track mind, which now makes sense, right? Like, of course, you have a one-track mind. You just experienced the greatest reward your brain has ever registered, and so we cannot blame people for now choosing things like meth, you know, meth over their children. We see that all the time, and we always blame moms for losing their children and leaving their children and choosing math, but, but, but any brain would do that, right? If you experience that reward, you're now locked in and it's scary and it is a state of being hijacked, but that's what it is. And we now see it. You can see it on brain scans.
0: You know, and this is this is where the conversation gets so fascinating to me, because I know there's going to be those listeners out there. that's like no personal responsibility, Jesse. It's right. what you talk about on the show. Don't blame, complain or make excuses. You can't make excuse. Mom gave up her kid. Dad bailed on his family. You know, uh, husband ran out on the wife. It can't be the cocaine's fault. He made these choices. And I, I just want people to, I don't know, have a, a level of empathy here. Yeah. Um, yes. Help, help help my listeners through this who are like, no, we Jesse says personal responsibility, <laughs> well, and now yeah. Tr- Trisha's <laughs> giving us a way out. It's no, actually 1200 no, 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 no. increase, but it's not what it is. I think it's the empathy you're asking yes, for people I to am. feel towards those who have been hijacked by this chemical yeah. terrorist.
1: Absolutely, it's empathy and it's understanding in this, in, a, in a, even a scientific way. I mean, just seeing what is happening to the brain and why behavior then follows. Because the brain is responsible for that behavior and it is now driven. And of course, recovery is incredibly um, beautiful and it's about personal responsibility and it's about kind of grounding yourself daily. Yes. And, and I'll get to that in a second. I'm not taking anything away from that, but, but we as outsiders can't just watch it happen and then just say, "Ugh, that person is a bad seed right? No, that person is still in there. (laughs) They're just walking around like a zombie, grab them, right? Do something, help them treat, give them treatment, right? Don't simply throw them away and, and, you know, throw away the key. And so you need to have that empathy still, which, and I'm just saying this, I know it's hard for family members. I'm not saying that you can all of a sudden have love and support for somebody who's in active addiction in your family, because you have been hurt. And goodness, there's a whole nother podcast on family dynamics of addiction, right? I'm not saying that it's easy, but I'm saying that there is some sort of brain issue happening at this point, um, which then kind of makes sense as to why they're behaving the way they are. I think, and then,
0: yeah. no, 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 I mean, well, yeah, I wanted to please, just, follow no, up with I, I want last you to finish. Piece. This is yeah. blowing my mind guys. If you could see me right now, I'm <laughs> leaning into her, everything she's saying it's, it's just keep going, please.
1: Okay. So the last piece of the puzzle kind of has something to do with what you were just saying is the prefrontal cortex is active um, normally in a non hijacked brain telling us, Hey, we need to kind of slow down and like shift some things. <laughs> Right, like maybe we shouldn't be doing this every day, right? And that is the beauty of a non hijacked brain. We have rewards all the time that we want, right? Like it's lunchtime, you want to eat lunch, right? You're big like candy fanatic, and you really want some candy, and you're like, well, I overdid it last night, so maybe I won't do it tonight, right? That's how a non hijacked brain works. So once your brain is now hijacked, and your reward pathway is leading you toward your reward your prefrontal cortex starts to become less active it's like it's it's being outperformed by this middle section of your brain that's really driving your behavior it's being left behind it's not working as well in fact we see that there's a part of the prefrontal cortex called the orbital frontal cortex it's just a part of the prefrontal cortex that is kind of thinning and losing its function and as a whole the prefrontal cortex starts to atrophy because it's not working well at this stage. It loses volume for, for up to twenty percent of volume is lost, and so it the prefrontal cortex is actually the only thing that might save you at this point from your runaway train of a mid part of your brain right but it's failing you it's not there it's not helping um. Furthermore, it's helping the reward pathway at this point. Instead of stopping it, it's looking for cues in the environment to help your brain find what it wants. So it will pick up on little cues like, does someone have a beer over there? Or does this restaurant sell liquor or whatever, you're starting to see things in the environment that may or may not be there because your brain is trying to find it and trying to get closer to it. So we have cravings and we have all sorts of triggers in our environment at this point with the brain picking up on these things to help you get closer and closer to what your brain wants and needs at this point. So your prefrontal cortex is failing you in so many ways. And it's actually leading you toward it. Little do you know. And it's it's the part
0: of the brain that's supposed to not be doing that.
1: Exactly. It's the only part that would ever like pull you back. There are moments of clarity, right? There are moments where you are away from the environmental cues. You are home. Maybe you're crying and you are saying, I can't do this anymore. But the minute you start on the, I can't do this anymore journey, you will be lured by all sorts of triggers and all sorts of cravings and an overactive reward pathway. So early recovery is incredibly delicate, incredibly delicate. That's why you hear people say, go to 90 and 90, right? 90 meetings and 90 days or find a sponsor or, or better yet, go in some residential facility or whatever. Um, lots of people want this external control around them in their first early parts of recovery because they know their brain, if they get tempted, is going to move toward that particular drug or alcohol that they their brain desperately wants. But your brain can heal during this recovery stage. The runaway train inside of your brain, the, the reward pathway that's desperately trying right to get you what you want can start to calm down. The receptors can start to come back. Your prefrontal cortex can start to grow back again. In fact, some people can get it to grow beyond the 20% that they've lost, which is remarkable. You do that through recovery activities, hanging out with people in recovery, meditating, cognitive behavioral therapy, EMDR, whatever you're doing. Um, whatever is your there a
0: time limit in. on that? Is that like, a, oh, in 90 days, you'll get your 20% back? Is there, <laughs> is there any studies about no, that? No,
1: that's a great question. I would say I don't know the hard and fast studies on that. But um, there are, it depends on how hard you're working, I promise you. There are studies on, this is going to sound weird, taxicab drivers in New York City who begin their journey as a taxicab driver. And so they kind of know New York City well, but not really well. But once they're a taxi cab driver, they have to really know the streets forward and backwards. And you can measure the growth of their prefrontal cortex before they got the job and after. And it's like, boom, (laughs) it's an enormous growth in their prefrontal cortex. Same with like people going back to school, right? You can see growth. And so I would say it depends on how hard you're working on your recovery. Then you'll get a fast growth rate if you're working hard if you're passive in recovery it will be a really a much slower growth rate for your prefrontal cortex
0: i love that you bring that up i had heard that that the, the new york taxi yeah. yeah. came from uh, from a from a speaker who was from london and so he used london people to discuss it but i remember hearing that right at the very beginning stages of my addiction recovery at kaiser and so i got super into again learning the science and the psychology and buying books and listening to podcasts and then i was introduced to nlp and i i was very aggressive i was the aggressive a yeah. person and i didn't realize at the time I was trying to regrow my prefrontal cortex yeah. i was just looking for things that were going to occupy my time whenever i normally would have been intoxicated that's helpful too <laughs> right and i'm like you know what i just wandered around the gym for 4 hours not even really working out but i just didn't want to be at home in my environment and that's um you mentioned environment there's there's multiple things that you covered i wanted to make sure we circled back on yeah. you talked about being lured back and i know yeah. Um, you know, you had mentioned that people are, they're still in there. And I think whenever, uh, so let me, let me just do these in order. I wrote them down. Sure. Um, you had mentioned like, Hey, they're still in there, right? The family member, they're struggling. It's like they, they're they getting, but at some point, a lot of them do the tough love thing. And I'm not looking for yeah. them to be calmed by that decision, but I am looking for them to understand how rational that actually is for them to make the choice to say, I'm no longer going to let the addict's life hijack mine. Yeah. Yes. They're in there. Yes. You want to get them back. You want to be able to get the zombie bite healed at the same time, you might have 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 to dissociate from them for a little while until they're willing to take that step for themselves.
1: Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. That's a great point. I'm not saying they're in there and it's your responsibility to get them out. Yeah. It's it's they're in there. They're in there. Love them in case they get out. Right. And let's hope that they do. And and finding a way out is different for every person. And it's not the family member's responsibility to to help them find the way out. And in fact, sometimes when family members Pull back with love, right? Detach with love. You're on your own, right? That actually might help the help the person find recovery, right? And so there's multiple ways for the person to find recovery, um, just not kind of losing, finding defeat, right? My my love, my, my loved one is gone forever, right? Just kind of knowing that they might be in there, and I'm gonna hope and pray or whatever your your way is. Um, to find them again.
0: I really think that this whole conversation is seeped in this personal responsibility um, idea that the addict will at some point, the the pre-contemplation to planning will, some somewhere along the line. Right. Like you had mentioned getting yourself out of the environment. Now, all of a sudden you're crying and you can be lured back. I can't help but think about how many times like I would go home from go home from college to my mom or dad's house and how like there it's like I was a whole different person. Yes. It, 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 it's like, I didn't want to drink on a Friday night. I wanted to sit around the dinner table and laugh and joke. It's, it's literally like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Like I couldn't believe And Then I'd go back and then I'd be like, you know what? I don't think I need to drink for a little while. And then on the drive back up to ball state, I pass Indianapolis and I was like, you know, I should probably stop and get a 12 pack to finish up yeah. this drive.
1: Yep, exactly. Yes. And neuroscientists say that we're literally in different states of mind when we make those comments and make those decisions, right? And you can, you know, this if you go to the grocery store hungry, (laughs) you buy all sorts of weird stuff. (laughs) And if you go to the grocery store not hungry, right? It's a motivational state. And so sometimes we are out of that motivational state and we're at peace and we're comfortable and we are swearing off all drugs and alcohol and we're going to get sober. And then at some point, we enter into a different state of mind, that motivational state. It's likely because the reward pathway just woke up and now it's going to convince you, you know what, you might want to just stop and get a 12 pack on the way home, right? And then boom, you're back to doing what you were doing. And it's, it's scary to some, right? Because they've sworn it off and then they can't, they can't stop
0: Yeah, you you, even mentioned in here, uh, one of the lines I wrote down, I love to keep little notes to keep me organized, is that maybe we shouldn't do this every day. And I actually have noticed this behavior. Like I have actionable stories in my life where it's so, you know, occasionally I'm putting muscle on for my workouts, which means I need more calories, which means at the end of the day, I've got about five to 700 to spare that I call my sugar time. And there'll be some times where I might do that for three or four days. And then I'm like, you know what? I have a little too much Halo Top, a little too many cookies. And I just stop and say no more for a couple of days and let's just let the, let, let the body get this sugar out of it. That shows me it's like, oh, okay, I have not been hijacked by sugar. I do love it. I love ice cream. But there's a difference between being able to say, no, I've got a whole yeah. cabinet full of sugar and not eating it for a week or two to get my homeostasis back versus back in my using days, if there was a bottle of beer in the house, yeah. I would go and drink it in my car on the way to work or whatever, right? Right. It was, it needed to happen. So it's fascinating that you bring that up. How can people monitor whether they're in, whether they're being hijacked by random things they wouldn't even think of like social media or sugar because alcohol and and cocaine's easy.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I totally agree. So it's funny that you say this. I teach a course every semester and it's happening right now about, um, I don't know, sometime in October. Um, We're picking Halloween. Um, My students have to pick an activity or a substance um, to give up for two weeks just to see and to like feel what it feels like, right? Are they thinking about it all the time? Are they lured back in? Are they able to actually stop? So lots of my students pick TikTok, which is a huge thing right now, right? They're just on their phone constantly. Can they actually delete the app off their phone and not... Think about it, crave it, go back to it, try to download it secretly, and then erase it again, right? Are they doing all these weird deceptive behaviors to kind of get their fill, or are they able to be like, that well, was kind of a waste of time i don't you know I, I, I don't miss it right it's it, It's good for me to to not use it and so it's kind of like a a weird test almost to figure out if something has really got your brain or if it's just a fun pastime or a fun activity or you know, a fun meal that you like every once in a while. Um, we all enjoy things and that should be fine. Right. And so just kind of testing yourself a little bit, um, is, is what my students have to do when they, <laughs> okay.
0: So <laughs> I, I want to, I know we're coming up on our hour and I want to yeah. honor your time. You're a busy professor and this is like rando student hits you up to be on a podcast. <laughs> so know. But before I, uh, before I walk too far away from what you just said, um, because I never even saw the conversation going here, but let's talk about if somebody, you know, if they're, if they're noticing a family member or themselves and they're saying, is this particular behavior starting to go down the path toward a level of addiction, not just alcohol and drugs, guys, we've talked about it, sex, porn, TikTok, social media, all of this. Um, and you do it, you may have just mentioned them, but just so there's a succinctness to it, yes. what should the behaviors that they, what, what, what behaviors should they be monitoring to, to notice, is this going down the path toward addiction?
1: I will tell you six things. There are six things. Number one. Pen and paper, folks. I'm write, writing these write it down. down. Write it down. Six things. Uh, salience, which is how important is it to your loved one or you, whoever you're doing this about. Um, How critical is this the most important thing in your life? Do you work everything else around it to make sure it happens? Right. Salience. The second one, I got to see if I can remember these off the top of my head, but I know there are six. The second one is um, mood modification. Does it change your mood for the better? Um, more so than anything else that you do, you find that you, it is your go-to. And if you can't do that thing, there's actually not many other ways you can get your mood to elevate, right? So you're, you're kind of feeling crummy. You have to have a drink, or could you also go for a run, call a friend, things like that, right? Three and four are tolerance and withdrawal is the person doing a lot more now than they used to whether that's video games or work or food or gambling or whatever. Withdrawal is if you can't do it, like for my students, if you can if I'm restricting you from it or some for some reason you can't do it. Do you feel crummy? Are you irritable, depressed, sleeping a lot or not able to sleep, change in appetite, right? Are there issues with that? Okay, that's 4. <clears throat> 5 and 6. Oh my goodness. Conflict. Conflict. Has it caused conflict in your family, your friends, a significant other? Has someone broken up with you? Has someone raised the issue with you? Has your mom said, I think you're on video games for too long or get off your cell phones, right? And then the last one is relapse, which is, you know, sometimes we can stop our behaviors, right? Recovery is not just about stopping. It's staying stopped, So if you decide to cut this out of your life for a couple of days or for a week, do you find it hard and you just go back to it? Or is it okay? Like you could take it or leave it, right? Or you could move on and find another hobby um, or find something to balance it out. Do you relapse, go back to it again and again? Those are your six things. That's your test. Has something that you enjoy turned into addiction?
0: I want to Google this now. Is there a is there like, yeah, the a, is research, there like a name for this? Yeah.
1: The researcher is Griffiths, G R I F F I T H S. I don't know their first name, but that's the last name, Griffiths.
0: Is there like a name for this, like the six things to watch no, out for? No, we did come
1: up with it, but we would uh, have to we, get permission from Griffiths. <laughs> well,
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna go read about this Griffiths thing, and this is gonna be its own episode right here. Yeah, because...
1: yeah, it's it's pretty awesome.
0: The, it it it's almost like the six stages of addiction or getting you know right it's like it's like
1: the checklist
0: yeah yeah i'm gonna that'll be the name of the show checklist the for your checklist. addiction, <laughs> yeah. I I could talk to you for another hour and not be bored of <laughs> any of this. I uh, I I've no doubt there there are some listeners who are probably like, "Okay, this guy is this is deep stuff." And there's others who are probably like, "I want to take this class with her."
1: Yes, yes. Uh,
0: which I do and I'm so wondering. I'm like, "Okay, how do I take more classes from you?"
1: Totally should. Uh,
0: <laughs> it's um, you know, again, I said 1 hour, so I'll leave it at 1 hour, but I do want to make sure that like is there when people start to think about the science of addiction and and how it's altering the brain and there's all of this amazing material that we've talked about, um, what is a way for them to just have a, have a clarity leaving this show around what is happening in their brain, what they can do to help themselves or others move through it. And I don't know, I don't know how to ask this question. What is a way you would summarize what we've discussed?
1: Oh gosh, that's, that's hard, but I would say some people are more vulnerable than others to have their brain be rewired in a way that is helping them find drugs and so ultimately maladaptive for them. And there's a long process of recovery for kind of wiring the brain yet again into ways that you want it to be wired and to focus on things that you wanna focus on, but your brain has already wired in the way of addiction. So it can fall back into that state at any point. So you do need to be aware that this is a chronic disease, not just short term, Um, but recovery is ongoing and it's purposeful and it's effortful and you embrace it and you just keep moving forward with it and you rewire your brain in ways that you want to rewire it.
0: Uh, That is fantastic. You may have just done what I'm getting ready to ask, but let's say you had a microphone that could reach every single ear on this planet. What is a message you'd want to say to them right now?
1: Addiction is a disease, have sympathy and provide treatment and help people um, find recovery and live meaningful and purposeful lives
0: it's the meaningfulness. It's the purposefulness. Yep. I talk yep. about this on the show all the time. I'm like, when you have meaning, when you have purpose, and it, and we talk about find curiosities and interests yeah. of yours, turn them into passions and passions become your purpose. Yes. And uh, you're clearly very much working within your passion, purpose, meaningfulness uh, spheres, because you bring a level of, of attention and care and uh, just A layman way of talking about this ball clearly with a doctorate you know you could you could have made it sound way more complicated and some people are out there like wait dude she said nucleus accumbens okay come on (laughs) i don't even know how to spell accumbens right right but i mean i found it fascinating i'm gonna end up turning this i'm gonna take i'm gonna this will be posted as its own standalone episode i'm gonna continue talking about what this is i'd love to have you come back again one day i absolutely love that you were on the show
1: Absolutely, and Jesse, you are reaching so many people. So please keep doing what you're doing because you're changing lives every day.
0: Uh, you know, with support of people like you, I think we all play a role in the adventure from sobriety to recovery for so many people. So thank you. I'm honored to have had you on this show. This has meant so much to me.
1: You are welcome.
0: All right, my friends, that is that we will be doing some follow-ups and I can assure you this uh, checklist of addiction is going to get its own episode. So as always, my friends, inclusivity over exclusivity, the power of positive energy release and flow every day is the best day of our lives because we wake up sober. Shout out to sunshine glow on. I'll see you next week. Goodbye.